Today's passage is John chapter 11, John chapter 11, verses 45 to 54. I'll leave that up there for you for a little bit so that you are able to find your way there. John eleven forty-five to 54. Uh, as I was thinking about this morning, I began wondering about an earlier version of myself, uh, my high school self. And, and I kind of thought uh, something along this line, like how many times in high school did I kind of start a night with my friends planning on one thing and then uh, almost like universally things ending up in an objectively worse spot by the end of the night, right? Like I, as I was with my friends, we had certain plans that, that uh, you know, we were uh, kind of considering, you know, things that we were going to do, and uh, this is what happens when you get teenage boys together and uh, don't give them any supervision, is that uh, things always end up in an objectively worse spot. So, uh, so I have confession for you all. Uh, I, I, um, I TP'd houses one time. One time when I was a kid, all I needed to do was one time because I had an incredibly strong conscience also as a teenager. And, uh, and so anyway, what was very interesting is that uh, in my mind, like what was happening in my mind is that these were going to be very minor efforts at TPing houses, right? We're just going to throw a few rolls of toilet paper out around there. And as the night went on, what I noticed is that the group of people that I was with got more and more daring about the kinds of uh, vandalism that they were going to uh, carry out. And so uh, what started as kind of maybe minor efforts actually kind of culminated to something more full-blown to the point where uh, several of the people I was with got the idea, hey, what if we went and TP'd some of our teachers' houses? Uh, and uh, one of my teachers, uh, because of this particular group of people who liked to go in TP houses, one of my teachers actually got like this full-blown uh, security system on his yard because this happened so often. And now you start to understand why his house got TP'd, right? So, uh, so anyway, uh, it, this, this thing progressed throughout the night. It started, and then we said, hey, why don't we go to our teachers' houses? And then by the end of the night... I was running from the police. I was, I was like, because they knew that, that this kind of thing was going on. So at the beginning of the night, I had not anticipated where the night would end and that like a handful of other stories in my life just combined with poor planning and my own stupidity, I have ended up with uh, situations in my teenage years that spiraled downward quite quickly. Right? Like this is, this is kind of just a pattern that we can notice in our world. So I, I wanted to kind of move it away from my teenage years and uh, talk about just some other things that maybe we can relate to. In conversations that you have with other people, and maybe those conversations get heated, how quickly can it take for a heated conversation to spiral downward very quickly? Right? You're aware of this. You, uh, because your, uh, your kind of emotions are on the rise in the midst of this heated conversation, and your blood pressure goes up, you have all of these physiological responses to something that might be frustrating you, and then all of a sudden, like, what you thought was just a conversation where you were going to have to pick your words carefully, you, you notice you don't have control over your words very quickly, right? And things start to, to come out that you maybe didn't intend on coming out in the first place, Right? 
all of a sudden your voice is raising, your heart is beating, you're on the verge of saying something that could actually permanently damage the relationship. For what it's worth, you probably have your own examples of times that you ended up in a situation that progressed downward beyond what you could have expected at the outset. And this is kind of the nature of the world that we live in, right? Because what you have in this world is you have human nature, and uh, this world contained with human beings who have human nature inside of it, it not only kind of, this is not only a place that has brokenness in it, but the nature of the people who live in this world actually fuel the brokenness that exists, right? We intensify the brokenness. We like kind of provide the kindling that makes the fire get out of control. So, um, so in John 11, we're processing today this series called This Is Life. So in John chapters 10 and 11, we've been uh, working through this theme of life and what it is and how it is imparted and who leads us there, where does it come from. So in the first week, we address this idea of life being where he leads, where the shepherd leads, where Jesus leads, that wherever it is, we don't know exactly what the qualities of life are or what the good things are that might come from it, but we know that Jesus is, is going there and he's actually the only one who's going there. So we better follow him, right? Uh, Week two, not only does he lead us there, but that life comes from him, that somehow he has charge over life and can grant it to whomever he wills. Week three, life given is relief from death. We talked about this last week as we looked at the story of Lazarus, how Jesus kind of, that, that, that there's this reality that nothing, no one can do anything about death. Death is this thing that torments all of us, right? It is our chief enemy uh, created by our own step into sin and rebellion, and it plagues us, and Jesus shows up to death, and then he compassionately kind of comes and provides relief to this family who is grieving. And then he raises Lazarus from the dead. And Lazarus, uh, for those people, was an illustration. It's an illustration of the kind of eternal life that Jesus has been promising to bring. Uh, And so this week, we're actually considering how life can come about in a world that is so prone to spiraling downward in such intense ways. Right? How is it possible that when uh, God said, if you eat from that tree and then if you continue to rebel from that point, like everything we do in our rebellion and in our thinking we know better than God does leads to death, right? And so if that is the world that we continue to live in, how is it that life can actually come about in this world? And that's the question that we are going to try to answer this morning. So John eleven forty five it says this, It says, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. For what it's worth, whenever John writes about the Jews, he uh, tends to not look favorably on this crowd of people that he has called the Jews, right? Sometimes he's talking about religious leaders. Sometimes he's just talking about Jewish people. But all in all, it's people who are constantly challenging Jesus, constantly uh, kind of uh, questioning and doubting him. Uh, And so there's a lot of confusion within this group of people called the Jews. But honestly, there's a lot of antagonism with them towards Jesus. And it said that many of them had started to believe that this antagonistic group of people that is presented to us among them are people who are starting to believe. And do you know why? 
because they saw Jesus raise a guy from the dead, right? Like there's, there's no other explanation for them. And so, so it says that they started to believe in him. Now, surely this is not the eternal life kind of belief, the way John talks about belief. He, he uh, adds different qualities to it. But when he's telling us they started to believe, what he's saying is that they're starting to turn the corner. They're moving from skepticism uh, and rejection to openness about who Jesus is. They're starting to maybe even be interested in the things that he has to say. So uh, then it goes on and says in verse 46, it says this, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, we're going to stop right now, right there. We're not going to look at what they said, but this uh, group, the council that it's talking about, this is a specific group. The council is the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is the highest ruling body in all of Judea, right? They, are, they control all of religious life. This is the chief Jewish decision-making body. And so there are 70 members of the Sanhedrin. They're comp- comprised of uh, priests who are the Sadducees, and they're comprised of scribes, people who write the law, people of the text, right? That's the Pharisees. And so there's a combination of Sadducees and Pharisees in the Sanhedrin. And then 71, so there's 70 of them, but then number 71 is the chief priest. He was kind of like the tiebreaker, right? He comes along and he's the, when they all have to vote on something or make a decision together, he's the one who kind of provides the edge in one direction or the other. So this is, this is the council that they're talking about. What does this council do? How do they function? Well, they kind of have two chief functions. Number one, they dispute matters related to their policy arrangements with Rome, right? So if these these people are in charge of the Jewish people, the Sanhedrin, what they do is they, together as a body, dispute the ways that they will relate to Rome, who actually is in charge of the land that they're in right now. So they dispute about that, and then they also do something else. They establish policy concerning religious life, right? Which for what it's worth, in Jewish society was a much bigger part of life than we might consider religious life to be today. Religious life was, in fact, everything. If you were excluded from religious life, you could not buy anything, you could not sell anything, you could not walk peaceably in the streets of Jerusalem if you were not included in religious life. And so this is what they did. This is how they functioned. And, and about this time, as they're together, what has happened is that talk of and po- the popularity of Jesus has kind of blown up. In fact, you could say that Jesus has gone viral at this point, right? He has become very popular to the point where, like, well, okay, so he raised a guy from the dead, right? That's one of the reasons why he's so popular. But, but people are listening more and more to the things that Jesus has to say. And so this group, this highest ruling body, is now at the point where he has gotten so popular that we actually have to talk about him. And so the, the people who come to present this information to the Sanhedrin, they're presented to us as a contrast with those who believe. So there are those who believe, and then there are those who are coming to kind of turn Jesus in. And so this is what this highest ruling body, these are the kinds of things they say here. It says, what are we to do? They said, what do do we do about this? For this man performs many signs. So I want you to notice, as they are talking about Jesus, when they say this man performs many signs, notice that they don't question or doubt the veracity of his signs. They don't doubt whether or not they happened. 
right? That's not happening. Nobody is here disputing, well, I don't think he really did that for this, this, and this reason. Nobody says any of that. It doesn't even come up in their conversation, right? So none of this is a question of whether or not Jesus is right in what he does. None of it is meant, none of what they talk about here is meant to investigate Jesus, to discover if he is who he says he is. In fact, Based on what we see here, they have no reason to doubt the miracles, uh, no reason to think that they are fake or made up. They have no reason to doubt Jesus' power or authority. Jesus has given them, in fact, all the reason in the world, but that's not what they're talking about right now. The sad reality is whether or not, uh, the reality is, is whether or not those things are true, whether or not Jesus is who he says he is, whether or not he actually performed these signs. For these people, those questions do not matter. They don't matter, right? They're not primarily motivated by like intellectual integrity. They are not primarily motivated by a desire to look for the Messiah, right? Which is what they're supposed to be about, by the way. They're watching and waiting for the Messiah. That's not their primary motivation in this instance. They're not primarily motivated by a desire to see God at work. None of that is there. Their next words reveal to us their primary motivation in verse 48. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. That is their motivation. That is the primary reason they are sitting together and talking about Jesus. What they cannot deny is that Jesus is a politically charged figure. Right, do you remember, so uh, we, this is a story uh, ways back in John, but uh, Jesus fed 5,000 people, which in reality was like 20,000 people. It said 5,000 men, but in reality, there were probably 20,000 people here present uh, at the, on the, the banks of the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus feeds them, and after he feeds them, it says they were going to make him king. They were going to take him and overrun him and crown him king, which would have had huge political implications for the day, right? So Jesus had to kind of sneak out and get away from those people so that they didn't crown him king. And certainly ever since that point, because that was not the only miracle that he performed, he's done many things since then. He's garnered even more of a following. More people have become convinced of his significance so other people have arisen, and, uh, and other people, so there have been other messiahs, for what it's worth, who've come along, and they've garnered followings themselves, but nobody has garnered the kind of following that Jesus has, right? So he's gathered a lot of people, and, and certainly, even if there were other messiahs, they would not have garnered the kind of people in the way that they did in such outright opposition to the religious leaders. Like, they would not have opposed the religious leaders the way Jesus is doing. And all of those people who are going after him, at least the Pharisees and the Sadducees, this, the Sanhedrin, they're under the impression that they're, like, they believe that he is Messiah, that he is the Christ, that he is the promised one. So because, and this, there's this reality, the Jews of the day understood the, misunderstood the role of Messiah. Who is Messiah? Right? In their mind, his primary role is he has come to be a military leader. He has come to uh, kick out the Romans and give us our land back. That's the primary thing that he came for. But what's interesting in Scripture is that the primary role of Messiah is a reconciler of people to God. 
right? Like that's his function. He is coming first to help the people go. Uh, they, this, these people will say, this is my God, and God will say, this is my people, right? To bring the two back together. But they treat him like he's a military leader. So this is their concern. The concern of the Sanhedrin. As they watch these people be amassed and watch people start to call him Messiah. They think if enough people follow Messiah, that they will have an uprising in Rome. That it will uh, disrupt Rome. In the middle of uh, what is called the Pax Romana, which is the peace of Rome, it is the longest period of peace in known history. It, it lasted 200 years within the nation of the, with the massive empire of Rome. There are no, there's no warring within this space. People are at peace with one another. And for for an uprising to occur in Judea, that would make them responsible for disrupting this Pax Romana, which would mean a lot of things because Caesar would not be very pleased with Judea being the place that disrupts this peace. Right? So the consequences are, as they think about the Romans coming in and doing these things, the consequences are they'll come and take away our place. When they say our place, they're talking about our position, the place, the place of authority that we have, the role that we've been given to lead these people in this place. And there's a special arrangement between the Jews and the Romans in a way that there's not an arrangement in any other part of Rome. There's this arrangement that uh, you will let us practice our religion and our way of life in this place and we'll pay taxes to you. And, and our leaders will work together with your leaders and kind of make sure that things stay in order in this place. That's the arrangement that Judea has with Rome. When they're saying they're going to come and take away our place, we will not be treated special anymore. We will not have this special arrangement with Rome. And then the next piece, it says they'll come and take away our nation. The existence of the nation was what the Israelites were all about. We have this nation. We have this land. We're trying to establish ourselves. So what's key to notice here? Behind this entire conversation is fear. Fear. They're going to take something away from us. These people, as they're talking, they're afraid of losing their influence. They're afraid of disrupting Rome and making Rome mad at them. They're afraid of being kicked out of their land. They are so afraid that even if Messiah came, they could not afford to jeopardize the arrangement that they have right now. So I would just give us a warning this morning as we talk about downward spirals. The warning is this. Unchecked fear lends great fuel to a downward spiral. Unchecked fear lends great fuel to a downward spiral. That is the case right here. Their fear is overwhelming them because they recognize that if Jesus actually achieves getting the following that he seems to be gathering, it could massively disrupt things for this arrangement that the Jews have with the Romans. So evil is always looking for something to capitalize on and make its move. And all of these guys are seized with fear. And what we're going to see is that evil is actually going to make its move in this instance. Verse 49 says this, But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Let's talk about Caiaphas. First it says that year. He's not just saying that single year, but more just saying that fateful year, right? 
Caiaphas happened to be high priest that faithful year. Why do I make mention of how long it was that Caiaphas was high priest? Well, it's important because Caiaphas was actually high priest for 18 years, which is an impressive number of years to be high priest, right? Most people are high priests like one, two, three years. Caiaphas stays in for 18 years, which tells us something about Caiaphas. He is willing to play whatever game the Romans want him to play in order to stay in this place, right? He plays the game with the Romans and they keep him in power. That's, that's what I, that tells us about Caiaphas. So, 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 Caiaphas is here, and and the role of a high priest in the first century Roman-occupied Judea was as much a political position as anything else. And so his staying power says something about his ability to appease Caesar. So that's who Caiaphas is, and this is what Caiaphas said to them. He says, you know nothing at all. Isn't that like a word of encouragement from him, right? You know nothing at all. It has the nature of like an emotional outburst to it. Kind of like uh, you're in the middle of a conversation and you say something like, you don't know what you're talking about. Right? That's what he says. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. This is what Caiaphas says. He says, you're worried when we have nothing to worry about. Right? This problem is easily solved. We will make arrangements for his death. Right? That's how we're going to take care of this. Like, you you are all concerned about what's going on. You don't have to be concerned. All you need to do is simply end his life. So, So notice what has happened with this meeting of the Sanhedrin. This has moved from kind of a more formal meeting. You might think of like a business meeting or something like that. This has moved from that category into more of like a, a backroom conspiracy kind of situation. Like this is the most culturally influential group of people in Jerusalem. What that means is that everybody at the table has some kind of network. They have some set of resources. They have a set of skills. Like, everybody has their own kind of tools that they're bringing to the table. And Caiaphas's thought is that with the people in this room, we can find a way to kill him to our advantage. Right? That's what he's thinking. And there, there are questions that come along with making a plan like this. How can we kill him in such a way that people believe that we were required by law to kill him, that we had no choice but to kill him? Uh, here's another question. Who among, us who, ha- who among us has the most pull with uh, Roman military and officials? Can we use that pull that we have with the officials in order to kind of bring Rome into this, to help Rome uh, do this with us? Uh, how are we going to alter the perspective of the crowds, right? Because we have to think about the fact that there are like, you know, masses of people who actually think this guy is Messiah. How are we going to convince them that he's not Messiah so that we can justifiably kill him? How do we infiltrate Jesus' inner circle? That's a very important question, right? Because we need to gather some information. We need to work out a situation where he might be betrayed, where we can meet him at the right time. right? How will we work to expose him as a criminal? And so what, what Caiaphas is saying is he's like Caiaphas is a believer in human ingenuity. And he says, you know what? We can figure this out. 
we have the right people in this room. In fact, we have the only right people in this room to figure out how we are going to arrange for Jesus' death. So he, uh, he believes in the skills of his team. He's confident that they can pool their resources and figure this out. And so he says the answer is easy. The way that you will be able to maintain your position and maintain your position and your power is that, and the way that Israel will continue to be a nation is that we will kill one man for all of our sakes. So do you see the spiral? <laughs> do you see how quickly this got out of hand? How quickly this went downward? Like this situation got dark very, very fast. It's not new that they're interested in killing Jesus. We've seen them take up stones to kill him before. We've seen different groups of people be interested in ending his life, right? But that was never planned out and thought out. This is like incredibly premeditated, right? What he is insisting is that the Sanhedrin, as a body of Jewish leaders, are going to work together and plan and plot Jesus' murder together. So I wonder, like, when the people walked into the room, how many of them did not plan on conspiring to murder somebody at the beginning of that meeting? But by the end of that meeting, they're all participating together. Suddenly, they've all been caught up in something that they didn't anticipate. But their fear is so strong that it makes them think that it's, actually, it, it might be justifiable for me to participate in this. It might be justifiable for me to be a part of this. And so all of this is true. And at the same time, these 71 men may actually gather together to make their plot but here's what is true. God always has his own purposes that he is working out in history. Right? Even when things have spiraled to their darkest point, it is always true that God is up to something, and that is still true here. Verse 51. It says, He did not say this of his own accord. Caiaphas, when he spoke these words, right? This is John, the, the, the writer, the narrator, John. He's cluing us into something. The words that Caiaphas, that just came out of his mouth, it may have seemed like they came from him. It may have seemed like he was trying to create this elaborate plot, that those words are motivated by that. But actually what happens is that John tells us these words are not Caiaphas's words. Someone else gave him these words. What were the words? The words were this. It is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Now, Caiaphas does not know that these murderous words were not his own. He, in fact, still thinks that he is kind of strategically preserving their power and their position, uh, which, by the way, after Jesus does die and raise from the dead, he is going to lose shortly thereafter. He thinks that that's what his words are doing. But this is what it tells us as the, the passage continues. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. Prophecy indicates to us that the words that were not his were actually words that came from God. Even though he did not intend to speak for God in this moment, God put words into his mouth that he spoke as a prophecy to the 70 people who are gathered in their, that room to plot Jesus' murder. 
Caiaphas, in his murderous intent, spoke a word from God. It is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And 52 tells us this, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. In speaking of an evil plot to kill Jesus, Caiaphas unknowingly speaks words related to how God plans on freeing people from their perishing. Right? Caiaphas has a plan, but God has a bigger and better plan that he is employing in the midst of Caiaphas' plan. And what is God's plan? That through the murder of Jesus, who is God in the flesh, God would grant life to those who formerly could only look forward to death. So what are the implications of this? That Jesus, who is perfect in an imperfect world, who is sinless in the midst of sinful humans, who is whole in the midst of a society that is fractured, who is full of compassion and full of truth and full of grace and full of hospitality, the Father's plan was that this Son of God, Jesus, would willingly enter in to the downward spiral, all the way down to the bottom, and become the object of it, the thing against which it was aimed that Jesus would subject himself to the depths of evil plans in this world and that Jesus would die for the people. And here's what Caiaphas didn't know, that this death would be much bigger and more significant than he had planned. That he as high priest, and this is the incredible irony of this, he as high priest was making a plan in which Jesus would be a scapegoat for the nation. I don't know how much you know about the priestly system, but the idea of a scapegoat is the high priest lays his hands upon the goat and then symbolically puts upon that goat all the sins of the nation, right? So what, is that, what that, that tells us is that Caiaphas, as high priest, is presenting Jesus as a scapegoat and that the Father would then lay on Jesus the sins of the whole world. And that human sin, which could only lead to death, would be judged in Jesus. That Jesus would suffer not only death, but also the wrath of God towards sin. And that sin would be paid by Jesus' death so that any who believed in Jesus might find a path out of death and into life. That's the implication of the things that Caiaphas says when he says this bit about Jesus dying for the people. So, though Caiaphas' fear-motivated, self-preserving, and evil plan, like, through all of that, God would accomplish the greatest good that has ever been accomplished by providing for humanity a way to life. This way to life, it it wouldn't stop at the borders of Israel, but what the, the text tells us is that it would actually go outside the borders of Israel and be extended to all of God's children who are scattered throughout the world. That's what it's telling us is it's telling us that that outside of Israel would be this message, this idea about who Jesus is, is, that, that through his death, he would actually pull into himself people scattered throughout the world, and he would be able to gather them in through the accomplishment of this death. This is just insane. Uh, As I was processing this this week, uh, do you know, like, 
So we, we operate in the 3D world, right? That's the, the world that we operate. We see things in three dimensions. And then there's talk of like this existence of a fourth dimension, which uh, the fourth dimension is the ability not only to exist in time and space, but to be able to move back and forth through time, which is crazy, right? But what's very interesting about all of this is, uh, as we were talking, like the, um, the Pharisees or the, the Sanhedrin, they're playing checkers, right? That's the game that they're playing. They're trying to plan and figure out how they can arrange for Jesus's murder, and they're playing checkers. And God is not just playing chess while they're playing checkers. He's playing 4D chess, right? He is going all over the, like, he is making bigger plans than they can even begin to imagine, and they think they're doing something significant. God is taking what they're doing and including it in his plans as a part of what he is working to accomplish. So, uh, you remember the story about Joseph and his brothers? Uh, if you go back to the book of Genesis, uh, it tells us a story about his brothers and how they sold him into slavery. And then after they, uh, that happened, they went back to their dad and said, Joseph is dead. He doesn't exist anymore, right? Like he's, he's gone and his, their dad mourned. And, uh, and then eventually through a crazy series of events, Joseph, over the course of his life, becomes second in command in the most powerful nation in the world, Egypt at the time. And Joseph... Uh, did this thing where he strategized the arrangement of kind of storing food in proper places, uh, providing it, uh, kind of uh, taking food and being able to not only provide it for Egypt over the course of time, but when famine hit the world around them, they were not only providing for Egypt, but they were providing for other nations in the midst of famine. And one day, Joseph's brothers come to Egypt because they don't have any food. And they stand before Joseph. Now they don't recognize him because it's been so many years since they've seen him. They ask Joseph for food. And, uh, and Joseph is able to provide for them. And eventually they figure out that it's Joseph. And so there's this kind of reunion moment. And then Joseph said these incredibly powerful words. I want you to listen to his words as he reflects on this situation. This is what he says in Genesis 50 verse 20. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today right in all of this God shows the power of his goodness right that he can take the most evil of plans and use them to actually bring about good that he can take the depths of human brokenness because like, honestly, that's pretty much what we have to work with on our end. And he uses that to bring about a good that we cannot even. This is how God works. He brings light out of darkness. He brings life out of death. He brings redemption out of brokenness. And the same is true in this story this morning. So if we could kind of encapsulate the whole of this story, the main point would be this. Evil's plan for Jesus' death was God's plan to bring life. Evil's plan for Jesus' death was God's plan to bring life. So verse 53, it says this. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. And verse 54 says, Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. What's very interesting is we talked about that Joseph story. And even as you read this a little bit, John is echoing the Joseph story as he tells this story to us. 
he tells us about the town of Ephraim. Uh, Ephraim, for what it's worth, Ephraim is a son of Joseph, right? All the way, those years, years, years ago, Ephraim is a son of Joseph, and Ephraim's name literally means God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. That's what it means, right? Isn't, isn't that true? Like, has not the gospel gone out into the world, right? The world that plotted and carried out Jesus's murder, the world that extended to Jesus great suffering, and as a result of his death and resurrection, gathered to him more fruit from all the tribes and tongues and nations from all across the world than we could have even been able to anticipate. Even like we who worship in this room, like I wager most of us don't have a Jewish background in here. Like we are the fruit of the affliction that Jesus suffered. Because of the affliction that he underwent, we have come and many of us have believed in Jesus. Because from the evil that was carried out, God brought good. So what? So what? I would encourage you to number one, change your definition of good. The promises of God, it's interesting, they actually come with an expectation of affliction. If you read the whole of the New Testament, there's no expectation that people will be able to somehow escape suffering. Right? But in the midst of suffering, they have a joy that is incomparable because they have something good that has actually been achieved and is being achieved in the midst of the suffering. Right? So good is not necessarily the absence of pain. Good is not necessarily the increase of pleasure. Good is not necessarily the comforts of the flesh. And good is not necessarily the absence of conflict. Right? Good is God's purposes being accomplished. That is what is good. And the brokenness of our world often means that pain and affliction and suffering actually may be a necessary part of how uh, the good God is doing comes about. But that suffering is temporary and fleeting. And there is no suffering that we endure that Christ himself did not endure before us which means that good for us is not always eliminating pain or avoiding suffering. Good for us is faithfulness to God regardless of our circumstances. So uh, that was number one. Number two is this. His death is your way to life. And with that, I will transition to us to communion. You know what's interesting is we talk about communion, we often speak of it as a celebration, which is strange for what it's worth. Like we talk about celebrating the body and the blood of Jesus because the things that we celebrate when we come to this table are marks of death. Right? How strange is it that we together as a, a community of people would take uh, juice and take bread as marks of Jesus' murder? Why would that be a thing that we celebrate? But the reason it's a celebration for us is that we had no other way to life except for Jesus to enter in to the point of the spiral and subject himself to that downward spiral. Life was blocked off from us because our sin was too heavy. So we celebrate Jesus' death because it is the way to life for those who believe. Right, so if you've never trusted Jesus, never accepted him as your one true Lord and Savior, 
I want to tell you that he is extending to you by his very death an opportunity to find life in him. Like to receive the promise of eternal life. Right? He uh, endured uh, the cross for our sakes, that he uh, allowed his body to be broken, and he allowed his blood to be shed. It was poured out on the cross so that we could be forgiven and enter into relationship with God and receive the gift of eternal life that he has to give. So I want to encourage you, if you have not believed in Jesus, if you have not trusted him, trust him today. Trust him today so that you can come to this table and receive this invitation of Jesus to celebrate these things and actually like be excited about the things that you're celebrating. Right? Trust him today. And if you trust, then come and celebrate this table with us where we constantly remember his invitation to life and celebrate it together as a church family. So this is what we're going to do. As we take communion together, there will be uh, a chance for you to reflect. Uh, there will be a little bit of music playing in the background. And then after you've had a chance to uh, reflect, you can come to the table as you feel led. You can take a piece of bread. You can take a cup of juice and then return to your seat. And then after we've all had a chance to come to the table, uh, we will celebrate communion together. We'll eat and drink the elements together. So with that being said, I want to give us the chance to reflect with gratefulness, with actually a heart of celebration about Jesus' death because Jesus, number one, did not stay in the grave. He rose from the dead. And number two, his death is the means by which he extends to us who had no other chance at life the opportunity to enter into life with him. So with that being said, church, I would invite you to reflect with us.